Welcome to Policy Emma Combs, a data-focused conversation on trade-offs. I'm Carlos Carvalho from the Salem Center for Policy at the University of Texas at Austin. What a pleasure to have Dr. Scott Atlas from the Hoover Institution, where he's a senior fellow and also a former professor and chief neuroradiologist at the Stanford Medical School. Um, the Stanford Medical School. Uh, Scott, thanks for joining us. Here, thanks for having me. So we're here in June 2nd, 2020, and um, I want to have a conversation about our policies and the decisions made leading up to this day uh, associated with the pandemic of, of COVID-19. So let's go back to March or even before that. When, when were you started to get nervous or, or concerned about what was coming our way and what data and information were you looking at then, let's say, you know, late February, March? Sure. Uh, well, you know, like a, every human being, I, my first reaction was I was afraid, uh, you know, because that's just a normal inclination if something is as bad as what was said originally about the fatality rate and, you know, sort of a, the assumption that this was, we were what's called medically naive to this infection, meaning it was brand new and uh, nobody would have any immunity, et cetera. And the first reports were, were sort of uh, really sensationalizing things. So early, uh, I would say in, uh, in February, uh, things started to come out about who was really being impacted. And yet there was this public discourse, uh, and then eventually in March, uh, I started writing about this. I think I may have written in February. I don't remember. Uh, but the, the reality was uh, that the data coming out was suddenly in a, in a public sphere discussion where people, I, I don't know why, maybe because we live in an era of hyperbole and we live where if you do a Google search, you're an expert and our society confers expertise to people who have none, but they happen to be successful in some other walk of life or they're rich or whatever the, the rationale for it is. And so there was a public discussion, incredibly naive to what medical science says, uh, and uh, really took off to be a very fearful discussion. And a lot of it was because of these hypothetical projections that were from you know, early on, statistical models, by, by virtue of being very early, are, are very uh, problematic by definition because there's very little actual data entering and it's just about a hypothetical. And somehow this became the discussion. The narrative was really based on worst case scenario, hypothetical, people were afraid, it was a bad mix. And so, so we're talking early March and, and mid-March, I think that's when you see the projections coming out of, I think, Imperial College being like the, the very influential model that, that people cite a lot these days, right? Projecting two and a half, 2.2 million deaths in the U.S. and something like 500,000 deaths in the U.K. Um, and even at that point in time, you would say that the information that we had about China and, and Italy was already pointing to the risk of the virus being primarily on, on was, was not necessarily in agreement with what those projections were making and, and perhaps more in line with what you've been saying about, well, there's a group of risk here that has a higher chance of, of infection. Is that correct? Well, there were two parts to it, uh, two parts to the sort of complete uh, a lack of rational or even what I would just call basic common sense about how things were being reported. The first one was that the numbers were calculated from people who, by definition, were sick, not 
and so when you talk about a, a, a fraction, a percent, an infection fatality rate, where the denominator of the fraction is, is just grossly uh, underestimated, you have this just strange uh, lack of understanding of that. Even though there were people who did understand this, that you're basically saying if, if X number of people die divided by the total people who are infected, but your definition of who's infected are only the people that sought a hospital. I mean, that's just really sort of, it's shocking that people uh, just went down that pathway. And very smart people did some incredibly sloppy thinking. And the second part was that we knew from, I like this, I've said, you know, I've done dozens of interviews about this stuff. And, you know, uh, uh, anyone in medical school understands who's at risk. When you have a viral respiratory infection, any viral respiratory infection, and you said to a medical student, who's at risk to die if anyone's going to die? The answer would be the exact group who's at risk to die here in this. This is not new knowledge, yet somehow that was forgotten. And so uh, when we see, for instance, just as a background, when you see influenza go into a nursing home, regular seasonal influenza, it's massively destructive. People die like crazy because older people with these significant underlying diseases, I'm talking about kidney failure, heart failure, you know, a chronic lung disease, and particularly the number one thing that makes you susceptible to infection is diabetes. This is widely known. This is not a surprise. Yet the public thinks even, you know, even people who I know who are super uh, smart people thought, wow, this is really unusual. No, it's not. And yet that fact should have immediately prompted attention to protecting those people, because it turns out those are the only people that die, essentially the only people. So there was a combination of a, a grossly exaggerated fatality rate <clears throat> and a, a, a bizarre idea that somehow shut down everybody. And, and this is sort of didn't pass a common sense test, let alone people who had a medical perspective. And I think th this was a big issue was that, like I say, that the narrative, the sensationalizing and the public discussion by very smart people, uh, didn't have a medical perspective on things. And I could talk about that if you'd like, because well, it's I'm interested. Important. That's one of the, so, so be, uh, I'm very interested in knowing why there was very little dissent to the, to the policies that were put in place. I think that you mentioned that there's a common sense aspect from medicine, but from where I sit I, from the very beginning, I was, okay, what are the trade-offs we're facing here? Shutting down yeah. an economy, something that's unprecedented. We, we cannot even begin to start thinking about the consequences, the economic consequences alone associated with that. And nobody seems to be thinking about this before taking the decision. Uh, right. That seems to be uh, the, 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 the smart opinion out there. You know, I, was, I was viewed as somebody very uh, unorthodox by thinking that, no, 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 we should be a little bit more careful. So do you yeah. have any sense why that was the case? Yeah, well, yeah. So I, I said from the beginning, really, and I'm not the only one, I'm not, I'm not claiming that, that there was a massive trade-off here. There was a policy, basically, uh, a, a pathway gone down of what I would call stopping COVID-19 at all costs. And, and this, is, uh, this was a gross, really gross failure of government policy here. Uh, as you as you are pointing out, because what what happened, and I've quantified this with some of my economics colleagues at other institutions recently, uh, was that the 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 sort of a policy was was a I feel it was based on fear, 
And it was also placed, sort of delegated, into the hands of people who were fearful to begin with. And even the scientists who were involved, they're not, they, they had a perspective that the only thing that counted was stopping this infection. And that's just wrong. I mean, that will go down as an, uh, an error of epic proportion when history looks back at this, because as we've, we've said, and, I, and I've talked about this many, many times, I can go through, but there's so many, the shutdown of the medical care by shutting down overtly in terms of prioritizing COVID-19, but also by instilling fear in the people has not only killed more people, directly killed more people than COVID-19 already, but it will kill even more and is setting up a massive public health crisis. Why it was done was because people, uh, I, I just have to say, people, you know, we have these policymakers who were, were swayed, they're medically naive people. I, I have to say I'm disappointed in the economic side of, the, of this. I mean, my, I work with a lot of economists uh, the world of economics is all about trade-offs and incentives and all kinds of things. That's what I've learned since I've been at Hoover for the past decade and a half. Uh, yet, the economists uh, were relatively silent as a group on this. And, you know, it turns out it's actually not that complicated to figure out because there's a lot of data, as you know, about what simply even unemployment destroys let alone the world, in, in the U.S. alone, let alone the world poverty crisis that's going to happen from this. And it's, it's, it was almost all, almost all unnecessary. Yeah, I, I, I wonder that myself about the economists and people that I see around me. And, and I think early on, there was this notion that if we count a value of a life at $10 million and there's 2.2 million people going to die, well, that's a large number. Uh, so therefore do whatever it takes. And, but that was not thought carefully. Number one, the $10 million number is not realistic uh, for all lives, unfortunately. And number two, the 2.2 million lives that were, 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 by now I think we know that that was out of, out of, uh, out of whack with the, with, the, with the actual realities of the virus, right? Yeah. I mean, the models were, were really grossly wrong. In fact, there's a lot of obvious errors in the models themselves. Although I hate to criticize people that were projecting on the basis of, of nothing, but it, but it turns out that, you know, there is an impact. You know, all of a sudden we had computer scientists in charge of policy. I mean, this is sort of, that alone is, is sort of should raise a red flag, but what's going on here? Uh, but, you know, they were dealing with, there was, a, there was like I say, a, a, a climate of fear. And as we all know, once fear enters the equation, irrational actions occur. Yeah, we made a lot of decisions based on worst case scenarios, which even if scientists were putting forward uh, the uncertainty associated with those projections, I think people latched on the worst case scenario and then decisions were made based on that, which that's not how we make decisions in any other aspects of our lives, right? Exactly. Uh, especially in policymaking. Policymaking is all about average outcomes, not worst case scenario outcomes. All right. So now we're, we're here June and, and we learned a lot about the virus since. And still we have lots of places in lockdown in, in uh, incredible restrictions in people's lives. So. Uh, what information have you learned since uh, that yeah. that has changed your your you know or has has maybe like provide you more more, more certainty about the, the the statements you're making now? Yeah, so so here here's what we know. Uh, you know, uh, we know uh, number one that the infection fatality rate is far lower 
one-tenth or even lower than the original infection fatality rates. And how do we know that? We know that from data all over the world. And I'm talking about average infection fatality rate. So you're talking about looking at data from the, in detail, not just the bottom line stuff, from uh, France, the Netherlands, Spain, everywhere, uh, Iceland, Taiwan, and now the CDC itself. Yet inexplicably, by the way, the CDC posting of this has not been reported, which is very frightening. Uh, that's a, one part one. They posted of a the, number that's like 0.25 percent, right, or 0.26 percent. Yeah, percent yes, and and actually, even that is is actually Average. too high because they didn't. They made of the low end assumption about how many people are asymptomatic and infected, uh, and that's contrary to what really we know. The second part of the, inf the the danger that we know is that it really is very low danger to anybody who's under 60. Okay, and I'm gonna, I'll, I'll go forward and say that the data shows when you look inside the papers, not just at the abstract of the paper, that's what I mean by very sloppy, there's an absence of critical thinking going on by very smart people here. When you look at the data from all over the world, uh, including the U.S., you see that if you're under 60, under 60 years old, your, your infection fatality rate is less than or equal to seasonal influenza. Okay, now, in the beginning, you, you couldn't even utter those words because it was, uh, you were, it, it's sort of like saying the earth You're is a flat. flat earther, yeah. yeah. yeah the, the reality is the science deniers are denying that fact. I mean, I hate to say it that way, but it's, 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 it's just factual that that's the infection fatality rate for under 60. And that means nothing about minimizing the tragedy or the seriousness of the infection. It's very, very dangerous for people who are in a certain class. What class? People over 80, okay? And people with serious underlying diseases, particularly diabetes. It's very risky. It's, 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 it's high fatality rate. Uh, so under 60 is less than or equal to seasonal flu and more so, even more explicit data now, very convincing, overwhelming data that there is literally zero risk, almost zero, almost zero, for fatality in people under 9, 18, meaning children, and almost zero risk of a serious illness for people in, in the childhood ages. So there is really almost no, there's no rational reason to do things like close schools or space out children or have children wear masks. This is really completely antithetical to the science. It has a lot of implication, uh, this, this denial of evidence about children, because uh, again, and we could talk about this, but there's a lot of harms, not just for economic lockdown, but to, to, to think that it's okay to have children shut out of schools is an incredible lack of thought about what's going on here, because you, you have harms not just from distance learning. This is a fantasy that distance learning, it's okay, we can do that until we open up schools. I mean, who, who are they talking about? I mean, there's a 30% drop in reading rate and reading comprehension already. In Boston, a, a huge percentage of children have never even logged on. Okay, this is going on all over the country. Every educator- And that's a rich city. And that's a rich, right? A city that's yeah. on the, yeah, yeah. And you know, that what I call the paraphernalia of the affluent, meaning iPads and software and all kinds of rapid broadband, you know, Wi-Fi. I mean, this stuff is not universally available to people. This is really destroying and setting up a further uh, unequal, unequal outcome 
in education from different socioeconomic groups. It's really a disaster. I just want to make one more point about what we know about the data in children. We also know that this idea uh, that children must be contained because they can transmit the disease. I mean, there's two flaws to that. Number one, you don't lock down the people who are healthy just because somehow an indirect uh, damage can occur. You protect the people who we know should be protected. That's sort of common sense. It's nothing to do with, I mean, you don't have to be a medical scientist to understand that, I would think. But the second point is that there's an overwhelming amount of evidence that, again, is just not really uh, acknowledged by these people who want to keep schools shut. Children don't even transmit the disease, hardly ever, if ever. I can't say they never do. That would be uh, not, not really true or not, certainly not proven, but it's certainly already proven that children are very low likelihood of transmitting to d- the disease to adults, even in their own parents, even to their own parents. And how, you know, the, the original papers that, that push for school's closure on the basis of children being contagious have been completely destroyed in, in the literature. And so, again, there's this fear, uh, but the reality is that closing schools is, is purely harmful to the people whose schools are supposed to serve. And it's harmful to the children. It's this, the lack of socializing, the lack of physical activity. I think every one of us understands that what we learn in school expands far beyond just what you can learn from a book. Otherwise, you really wouldn't go to school, honestly. And, uh, you know, secondly, the, this idea that ch- the teachers need to be protected. In K-12 through schools in the United States, half teachers, half the teachers are 41 years old or younger. 82% are under 55. That's not the risk group. If there are high-risk teachers, we know how to do social distancing for them. They can surround themselves with a six-foot space. They can use a plexiglass shield if they're fearful. They can wear all kinds of stuff to protect themselves or even teach from home if they want to. That has nothing to do with shutting down schools. That is just completely irrational and very harmful. And this idea as a, another point that we know, and I'm going to say this because very few people even talk about it, This idea of masks being necessary, particularly for children, is completely irrational. First of all, the WHO itself, this is another thing that's not even been in the news because I I just don't know why nothing positive uh, is is really uh, explained. The WHO itself, a cautious international organization, has on their website the following quote, healthy people only should wear a mask when taking care of COVID-19 patients. That was from last week or so, right? Yeah, that's not talking about asymptomatic people. That's not talking about potential people. This is really talking about the only reason for an otherwise healthy person to wear a mask in any situation is if they're literally thinking someone with COVID-19 who's sick and coughing around, coughing in their face, could contaminate them. That means in a hospital or if you have somebody in your home who is coughing and sick, it's reasonable to wear a mask. But otherwise, now in schools to have children wear masks, given all the data I just outlined on children having zero risk and not even being contagious, really, you should protect people who want to be protected. But children, it just doesn't make sense. And this idea of wearing masks in public 
uh, I'm sorry to keep going. But no, but that, 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 I think that's, for, I, in these days, that's the thing that most, most uh, is in my mind, is yeah. what, what we know, do about, about schools in the fall. Yeah, and yeah because you know, when we lock down children, as everyone knows, you're locking down parents. Okay, it's not true that everybody's walking around with a nanny in their house or it's only an inconvenience that their kids are underfoot. I mean, this is just not, this is really a complete lack of understanding of real world. Uh, you can't go back to a job if you, have a if you have children at home. But the harms to the children themselves really are, are the biggest issue, including the summer programs, by the way. There's no reason to stop summer programs. And what we see now is this bizarre set of regulations, not just in K through 12 schools, but in unfortunately our own universities. But I'll give you an example. LA County has a, something like a 54 page booklet on opening schools that was just released. And they're talking about as many communities are, half days, distance learning, six foot spacing, children wearing masks, one way walking in hallways, giving a little kid a ball at recess with their name on it and no one else can touch that. This is really, this is, I don't know, I don't even know how to explain how irrational what we're seeing is. And, and unfortunately, the policymakers are, are, are just being, basically to me, honestly, and it's not political, they're just exposed as being grossly incompetent and unable to do the job. But it's to the point of destruction, really. It, it really is. And, and I think it illustrates a lot the lack of trade-off thinking, right? The fact that the fact that um, these these things, this fifty-four book was made, and I don't think there's any consideration to the outcomes in terms of learning, the outcomes in terms of social behavior, the outcomes, the, the, uh, the psychological outcomes. I mean, children are going to be terrified to go to school if they think and that you, they are a vector for this and something really. They, they yeah. are they're very. Uh, uh, the, um, it's easy to to impress them, right? So so creating that paraphernalia of fear around them is not going to be something very good for the long term. Yeah. And there's other issues also that are even more direct related to children's health. Uh, number one, we know the data shows more than half of children are not getting their vaccinations because people are afraid to bring them near a medical facility. This is on the CDC pages. This is fact, which is a future health a really catastrophe. But uh, but secondly, you know, people go to school, you know, a lot of people, a lot of children first are detected to have, say, a hearing problem or a vision problem at school, by the school. This is a school environment that, the, the, you know, school nurses and these kinds of sort of healthy uh, health maintenance or health detection activities are, are often done in school. Not to mention sort of, you know, lower socioeconomic groups get a lot of their uh, adequate you know, basic nutritional needs met from food at school. I mean, there's really a massive problem, a disconnect between uh, the governing uh, powers that be and, and the role of schools. The role of schools is for the children. The children are safe in schools. In fact, in many ways, they're safer in schools. There's a better environment. We're destroying, and we're like you're sort of implying there, I feel we're creating a, sort of a generation of neurotic children by making them afraid and wearing masks. I, no one can anticipate or define really the ultimate endpoint of that in terms of the long-term outcome. We're already seeing, by the way, indicators that, that suicides are higher now in younger people from the lockdown. And suicide calls to hotlines, there's articles all over uh, about this, are increasing. I mean, the, the massive destruction of the policy is 
far higher than COVID-19 directly. Let's finish with school. Uh, the, 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 that's one more thing in the, the topics of school. You mentioned universities, and universities, a lot of them are man, uh, planning for the fall. And yes, just like the LA County, there's a lot of different universities with very elaborate plans on how to deal with things, how to manage students, rotating them in classes, um, uh, occupancy, reducing occupancy tremendously in, in, in their, in their um, classrooms. How do you think about that? And what are the things? Yeah. So, so would you consider that that group of people being so low risk as well that this is not the way we should be going forward? A absolutely. I mean, 80% of university students are under 24. And, uh, you know, the, the overwhelming majority of people in this age group, I mean, you could look at data from under 20, under 30 age bracket. It's extraordinarily low. If we were to take the logic that's being used to, to make these modifications, then I have no idea why they don't do that every November through April during flu season. In the United States alone, 50,000 plus people die every year from flu. And it's the same high-risk group, basically. Actually, it's, more, it's worse for, for young children. The flu is far more dangerous for young children. In fact, uh, just as a comment, the bottom line of a study in uh, JAMA Pediatrics uh, about a week or two ago of 46 hospitals in North America, pediatric hospitals, their bottom line conclusion was, quote, the likelihood of a critical illness from seasonal influenza is far greater than from COVID-19 in children. So, uh, but the point about the university population is, yes, it's absolutely the same. There is zero science, zero reason to have any kind of modification whatsoever in terms of masks, spacing, changing classes to distance, zero. We know who to protect, and the protecting is not necessary for young people. In fact, it's actually, not only is it no problem to get the infection for 99% of people under 60, more than 99%, but the reality is that for people in, in, uh, that are low-risk groups, which college population is, it's actually, it's harmful to establishing population immunity because population immunity depends on uh, immunity individually that breaks a connectivity chain toward the vulnerable. I mean, this is the purpose of vaccines. Vaccines are, are, are injections that generate antibodies. And that, that sort of wide population theory about using vaccines widely is only to induce the so-called herd immunity. It turns out, and this is, a, you know, there's so much to say, uh, I could get off track, but there's a lot of immunity in this disease that is not detected by the specific antibodies. And that's sort of a medical science issue that is interesting. We could talk about some other time, but uh, the reality is that the same issue applies to universities as it does to K through 12 in, in both sides. Number one, the reason you go to college uh, is not just to learn, the, to sit there and learn online. I mean, nobody would pay the money to go to Stanford University if that's what Stanford <laughs> University was all about. Uh, whether or not it's worth it is a separate issue. But in, even in, in this sort of uh, environment here, that is like, to me, I, I just, I think that we have an illustration, again, of people who really don't understand, they're not using common sense and logic and looking at the science. We have a dramatic example here of what, what is the purpose of the university? To me, if I could pick one thing, it's to teach people how to use critical thinking. It's not to memorize facts. It's not to memorize history. 
it's not. If I had to pick one thing, and we are showing a gross absence of critical thinking by the leadership in universities. You know, if you want to protect the high-risk professors, then we can protect them. In fact, they can, if they're so afraid of walking into an environment, or if it's medically reasonable to have that fear, either one, they're welcome to teach from a distance as far as I'm concerned, or set up a, a six-foot space. them, right? Anything they want to do is fine. But to stop the interaction of young, healthy people, just like it, it is completely irrational and counter to the evidence and the science, just like it is to limit restaurants and require six-foot spacing, to limit businesses and require, no, I think it's fine to have a, you could put a warning up there uh, on, the, on the door. But, you know, to claim that restaurants have to have six-foot spacing, nobody's forcing anyone to walk into a restaurant. But I'm not advocating that you must go into a restaurant. You must go into a bar. No, if you're afraid or if you're high risk, okay, you, you don't have to go in. But, it, but that's sort of the opposite from what's being done, which is to make all these sort of completely irrational restrictions on healthy people instead of simply protecting the risk, which, by the way, not only the destruction of the policy, but the gross, really egregious, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but I would use the word criminal negligence, or even worse, of killing all the thousands of people in the nursing homes who amount to 40% or more of the deaths, even after the lockdowns. I'll give you an example. New York, they locked down New York State on March 20th. Seven weeks later, there was an order to strictly protect the nursing home residents. Okay, that, that kind of order was called for by, by many of us months before that was introduced. And when you look at states, it's not just New York, uh, it's the West Coast, the Midwest, the East Coast. I'm talking about 50, 60, 85% of the deaths are in nursing homes, and yet we're locking up all the healthy people. And by the way, the U.S. does not have a monopoly on this complete failure. Even countries that were sane, like Switzerland, Sweden. I mean, Switzerland, 53% of the deaths were in nursing homes. In Stockholm itself, 70% of the deaths were in nursing homes. I mean, this, like I say, is like, you know, common sense medical school 101, uh, you know. Uh, and instead of doing that, what was necessary and was called for by many people, they just decided to lock down everybody and just forgot about that. It's, it's really inexplicable. So, so uh, part of what I think there's uh, uh, the suggestions of continuing the social distancing and restrictions and, 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 and in schools and universities, et cetera, is this notion that people that might not be at risk individually by them congregating generates an externality, a negative externality that is going to you know, increase the chance of somebody in the nursing home being infected at the end of the day. Yeah. What I find interesting about the lack of discussion about the, the, the positive externality that you just mentioned on the herd immunity. Yeah. The young people, if you're, if you're able just to sever the, the, the connection between the young and the old, that is what's needed because then you create a positive externality for society. We essentially get vaccination naturally if the young and healthy are able to get it. But that again, you mentioned economists being silenced on this. That's a, a very clear economic point that has not been made and has not been taken into account in the, in the epidemiological models. You know, and then the other, the other sort of uh, distortion of what the whole policy goal ever was to begin with, there is no goal. There never was and there never should be of stopping all cases of COVID-19. It doesn't matter if you get the disease if you're not going to have a serious complication. 
this is sort of, I don't even know why that has to be explained, but somehow there's this focus on, oh my God, we must have cases stop. No, that's not true. We only have to prevent the cases going to the people who are going to die or have a serious illness from it. Uh, and, you know, that that is actually sort of lost in the other part of this equation about herd immunity, which is that the actual contagiousness of the disease and the numbers that were calculated are, are based on a very flawed, and now uh, evidence is, is coming out on this, concept of immunity. The immunity to this disease is more than just the specific antibodies to this virus, and that's the most likely explanation, not anything else. It's the most likely explanation of why Asian populations had less problem with this. They have a tremendous amount of experience with other coronaviruses and other SARS viruses. There is a cross immunity here. This is coming out now and it's being uh, exposed. But again, we don't get any discussion of this. It's sort of science, uh, it's esoteric knowledge. But uh, this calculation that keeps being repeated even as recently as two days ago by, again, very smart, qualified people about the need for herd immunity to require 60 or 70 or 80% infection rates. It's just not true. It really is just not true. It's false. It's, it's contrary to the science. Uh, for instance, when we look at the uh, Princess uh, cruise ship from Japan, where it was a closed population with no social distancing done, in mainly old people even, but still closed population, 25%, 24% of people were infected. I mean, how would you account for that if it was so contagious and there was no distancing done unless there was a natural immunity that was already present, even though it's not detected on the basis of the antibodies themselves? There's all kinds of uh, data coming out on this. I, ju I just sort of, as another example of refusal by scientists, somehow who are either wedded to some previous theory or who are fearful themselves. So um, go back to something you wrote recently on the on the the sort of health trade-offs, and let's talk a little bit about that. I think you, your number you, you you estimated that we already lost per month something like seven hundred thousand years of life by not uh, uh, by not treating people and by the uh, uh, indirect effects of of locking locking things down, which would add yeah. up to one point five million um, years if given the amount of time that we have been in lockdown, far surpassing what we've we're going to be, we've seen already in terms of COVID or we will see for the end of the year. Tell us a little bit more about, about that calculation. Sure. What, 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 what goes into it? Sure. So there were, there were two aspects as you point out, and we were very conservative in these numbers because we only considered a certain list of things. Uh, we wanted to be conservative, but we wanted to also consider what we knew we could get data on. So on the healthcare side, the hospitals shut down by directive for quote, non-essential uh, conditions, uh, as well as instilled a massive amount of fear. I sort of alluded to this, but you know, we, the numbers are 650,000 Americans have cancer in the U uh, and, and have chemo regimens. Half of them stop going in. 40% of people with an acute stroke that would normally come in within hours, they didn't call the ambulance. 85% uh, of living organ donor transplants procedures were not done compared to the previous year over that um, single month, actually, of lockdown. Uh, and it goes on and on. Two-thirds of cancer screenings were not being done, sometimes three-fourths. You know, half of immunization plus more than half of immunizations were not getting done. So these things have 
calculatable uh, from uh, the actuarial tables, from the published data, from the CDC, from life expectancy. And we calculated the loss of life years given the ages, given the you know, the uh, missed cases, we, we, for instance, we were very conservative in just calculating only the things that were cited in that paper. And in addition, we said, well, let's just say only 10% of people who skipped an immunization didn't get it. It's likely it's going to be larger than that, a common sense tells you. Then we took the other side of the, uh, the summation, which was due to the economic lockdown. And instead of going through every possible manifestation, which there is economic data, as you know better than I do, about the calculation, the translation of loss of GDP or whatever to lives lost and who, who is lost, loss of jobs. We only took the unemployment number. And of course, we stopped at, I think, 36 million at the time. We know that's going to be much larger. It's already over uh, 40. Yeah. yeah, it's over 40. And by the time the paper came out, it was only a few days after we submitted it, it was 39.6 or something. So, uh, But anyway, we, we just did that. And what we came out with was that each month of lockdown was almost equal in life years lost in the United States to the total of the COVID-19 pandemic life years lost at the time when there were roughly 100,000, just under 100,000 deaths. And so uh, we calculated that. And of course, we use the actuarial tables and it, and it does, you know, it's not minimizing value of a life when you calculate life years lost. It's the only way to rationally do it. Uh, and we find that in the two months, as you mentioned, it was almost double. So you've changed uh, a 1x life years lost from COVID-19, and you've added 2x more, so you've tripled the damage, and that's just after two months. Uh, we know the lockdown is continuing, even though a lot of a sort of what I consider misleading statements are made, oh, we're open or we're opening. I mean, we're opening in such a, a minimal way compared to what's going on here, uh, economically particularly, but also it's very slow uh, to regain the confidence of the public in getting health care. It's starting. It's clearly starting. But, you know, when you look, there are other numbers we didn't even use. Two-thirds of physical therapy was not being done. Uh, you know, 50% of urgent care visits were not getting done. I mean, this is serious stuff, but it was hard to quantify exactly. Uh, so we were conservative and did what we could. The number is a gross underestimate of the life years lost from the lockdown. I can guarantee you that. Are they quality uh, adjusted or not? No, uh, we just did life years. Uh, you know, there's so the more I, I, what I didn't want to do is fall into the, the trap of a modeler. Uh, we didn't do anything that complicated. We did some sort of very simple, but you know, sort of legitimate uh, stuff that wasn't really deniable. Uh, although I'm sure people are going to argue and nitpick, but I, like I said to someone once uh, interviewing me about this, I think the nitpicking really is that we were too low in our, in our, uh, estimates. So, so, you know, we mentioned that we are, we're now in a experimentation phase where some places are in, in, in the U S in particular, we have some States open, some States close, um, and some States saying that they're going to be closed for a lot longer than, than, than like me here in Texas, you're in California where things are still severely closed. Right. right. Um, uh, and all we're seeing pretty much every country in Europe opening up to some extent, some of them allowing kids to go to school and, and, and so on. Have you, as you look at the evidence coming out of that process now, the process of unwinding the lockdowns, does anything worry you? Uh, do you see anything that, that 
that that is concerning or or because every single epidemiological model predicts under their assumptions that we're going to be look, moving towards a second wave. Right. Well, uh, it's not true that every single one, but the ones that are in publicly the, uh, discussed, certainly. So there's two aspects uh, to the question, to answering it. Number one, no, I don't see the projections about uh, the sort of explosion due to the opening. It's just not happening. It's not happening in the United States. It's not happening in Europe. In fact, uh, an interesting comment was made in a couple of countries in Europe. One is in Switzerland, where they've actually accelerated the opening because absolutely nothing is happening. Uh, but the second part is in, in Norway. The prime minister in Norway was quoted yesterday or the day, I think the day before. I mean, the days are sort of one day to me now because it's all, you know, COVID-19 24-7. But uh, she said something like, you know, uh, I admit the decisions were made out of fear. I shouldn't have closed schools, you know, and all kinds of disclaimers and, and actually honesty about how, how, how really poor d- the decisions were made. Now, so, uh, she actually made a statement that was stronger in the sense that she said, even if there is a second wave, we're not going to close schools. Yeah. And, and actually... So there's two things to this. This, uh, this idea of a second wave, let me, let me address that, is a hypothetical, okay? I mean, no one, zero people know there's going to be a second wave. I don't care what they say. This is ludicrous to say there is definitely a second wave. There might be a second wave. I'm not saying there definitely won't be. But uh, we, can, we can say that other SARS didn't necessarily have a second wave. They disappeared. In fact, the uh, the... The drug by Gilead, remdesivir, that was uh, brought out very quickly here and tested in in this virus, the only reason it was tested so quickly was because the original studies that were done already had determined safety in in primate models and and sort of efficacy too. Why was that never approved for previous uh, SARS viruses when it was actually, the drug was invented? Because there were no more patients to test it on. And now we see in the news, as I, I think people have seen, the, the vaccine makers right now are frantic because they're, quote, running out of patience. They, they need a certain N to be able to test and prove efficacy. And if there's no patience around, there's no patience to test and prove the vaccine. And that, that's a real problem. And it's, it's actually true that as viruses mutate genetically, this, again, is another example of sort of what's been propagated in the public uh, discussion. Somehow that's so dangerous. Oh, my God, we're not going to be able to find the vaccine. But the reality is that's also how viruses become weak and disappear. They mutate. They get what are called deletions in their genetic sequence, and they're, they're ineffective. In fact, they may be present, but they don't harm the host. That's how they survive. They become weaker. And so uh, the second wave is a hypothetical I know a lot of epidemic. I get, I get uh, honestly, when I started writing about this, I was getting thousands of emails from all over the world from not just regular people, but top medical scientists, epidemiologists from all over the world thanking me for being so uh, outspoken on this, saying I'm saying something exactly right, and they're afraid to come out. Other epidemi- So my point as a lead-in is other epidemiologists have noted that the likelihood of a second wave is nowhere near what we thought it was. In fact, another example of something that's unpublicized, the WHO itself 
And now Fauci sort of agreed with this, but the WHO said, we think that the second wave likelihood is less likely than we were talking about. They said that, the WHO recently. Fauci even said, well, we don't really know there's going to be a second wave. So, I mean, that that's also not, not considering the following, and that is, we are a different country now. We are a different world now. We understand how to deal with this sort of thing. No one knew what the term social distancing meant, I don't think, uh, before this. We Astodon. understand... Right. Well, we understand how to how to use uh, sanitization. We understand who to protect, which I think, again, we keep forgetting uh, that there is a targeted population here. We we did a great uh, kind of learning on the fly on how to mobilize medical resources. Uh, and, you know, I've been in discussions uh, with uh, people on how to do that in conjunction with military strategic mobilization uh, work. And so we, we are we're not just a, a naive population if there is some sort of second wave. Uh, uh, but, you know, a second wave, it's possible. But I think this idea that, oh, my God, we're going to have a second wave. We better hunker down. We can't have schools. What happens in the fall? I just think this is a gross distortion. Uh, again, uh, just fear-based uh, stuff going on rather than looking at the science. Yeah, and, and um, absolutely. I, if we... If we I just keep looking at the evidence, keep looking at the evidence is all I can ask people to do and, and, and stop getting the, the projections based on hypotheticals. I think you, you wrote something that, that was very striking as that uh, let's go back to the evidence and stop looking at hypotheticals. One of the problems that, that I've seen happening a lot in this process was that people have been using hypotheticals as evidence. And that's not the scientific process. We don't use hypo, hypo, hypotheses as evidence. Hypotheses are to be tested. Right, and, exactly, and you know, and and we still, I think we still see there's a lot of pushback. I mean, I, I live in a state that has been moving to towers reopening, and I think the default uh, critique from the majority of academia is that we're doing too fast. We're we're just putting ourselves into into a real bad situation very very soon. Uh, yeah, and and the evidence doesn't seem to be you know providing that information once you go look at everywhere that has been reopening. Absolutely. And, and again, you don't have to be political. It's not a political issue, really, although it's been sort of it's it somehow have become, is, right? Yeah. everything is political. But uh, the reality is when you look at what states have done that have opened, and I, I would even go so far as to say, I prefer to even look at countries that are not the United States and see what's happened. Because Europe is ahead of us in terms of opening. Even places that were more damaged, I'm talking about places like France, Spain, Italy, these places had a far bigger problem than the United States on a per capita basis. They did much worse than the United States did, and they are the size of basically a big state, and they still couldn't handle it, by the way, with their healthcare system, which is a separate issue. issue right. but, uh, but the reality is when you look at these countries, uh, and we know where we are in this pandemic, this thing is, is, is not just the same situation and going away and, and uh, sort of just controlled by social distancing. This is a fallacy. The reason that this is gone is because it's going away, not because of social distancing. And so, in fact, when you look at the original purpose of the lockdown and the social distancing, it was to flatten the curve. That didn't change the area under the curve. I mean, for your students, I think they understand what I'm talking about. I don't say this in a, in a, TV interview. Right. But you know, the area under the curve, meaning the number of deaths per day, 
That was never changing. There is a natural curve here that we're talking about. The only flattening of a curve had to do with stopping hospital overcrowding. This disease is going away. It's not that it might not recur. It's not that we don't have to protect certain populations. If my father or mother were in a nursing home right now, I would have, I would have pulled them out, but I would have insisted early on that no one can enter without being cleared of infection. And so I'm still nervous about that group because you should always be, and the virus still exists, there's no question. But the, but the reality is that you know this is sort of going away as hoped and honestly as expected, and it's just not the same situation that we were in before. It, it, the future is, of course, somewhat unpredictable, but not wholly. We don't throw away decades of medical science and established immunology and virology because we're nervous. I mean, that's just not how it works here. Well, we did. We did. did. Unfortunately, did. Scott, thank you so much for all the work you've been doing, and, and thanks for joining us today. Appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to Policy at McCombs. 